tremendous challenges and opportunities exist right now for our nation's water infrastructure. In this podcast, the industry's top leaders and innovative minds share their knowledge and insights for ensuring our water systems are operating safely and efficiently. These discussions are designed to motivate and create vibrant 21st century water systems and the innovative workforce required to lead and operate them. This is 21st Century Water with your host, Aquasite founder and CEO, Mahesh Lunani. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm with Dr. Lynn Brodus. She's the president of Water Environment Federation. She's also the president of Broadview Collaborative. She's worked at Johnson Foundation and the TNC. She's known for thinking big, outside the box, and to address sustainable challenges. She's highly educated with a PhD from Duke University. And so we have the right guest here to talk about the water in the 21st century today. Welcome, Lynn. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. And I I hope I do turn out to be the right guest. Oh, you will be. I'm sure you will be. So I want to get straight into a dialogue with you. What caught you into water? Oh, gosh. You know, I I like to kind of say I sort of fell into water and it's literally and figuratively. I kind of joked that as a kid, I fell into water because my mother made sure that I knew how to rescue myself from a canoe. You know, she taught me how to dump over the canoe and how to get myself rescued from it. So literally, I fell into the water back as a kid. But as an adult, you know, I kind of think of my career in a maybe three phases. Uh, the first phase, I was a teacher and then working on my PhD and that sort of thing. And then I had a big chunk of my career in biodiversity and conservation, mostly with the Nature Conservancy. For family reasons, we moved from the East Coast to Milwaukee, and I brought that career with me. It was way back before people were really doing remote work, but it was a nice way for me to stay engaged nationally, even though I had to make this family move. And that was great. And about a year or so into that, I realized I was really lonely in my new city because I was working remotely and I didn't know anybody there. And I I needed to find a way to work where I lived. Uh, And I had made a commitment to myself to never have the hour-long commute that I had left behind. So I ended up volunteering with this group, Milwaukee Riverkeeper. And next thing I knew, I was their unpaid executive director, not exactly the career advancement that I had anticipated. But that day that I started, I put on the hat as executive director. I knew that I had come home. I knew that water was where I was supposed to be. And the light bulb for me went off when I realized that water is democratizing, small d democracy. The water belongs to everybody. Yet it sort of suffers from the tragedy of the commons. And my job was to be the voice of the river. And I just, I love that. That was meant for me. I I love that. I did that for about half a dozen years and then went to the Johnson Foundation at Wingspread, where I got to bring people together from around the country on water policy issues, big water policy issues at a time that most people weren't really thinking that the U.S. had a water problem. And it was, you know, you talk about how much you love meeting people and learning and learning from people. And that was six years of getting to do that, asking interesting questions, bringing smart people with different perspectives together. And, and that was my phenomenal education on water and formed the basis for then kind of launching as Broadview Collaborative. So you did literally fell into the water and yeah. now you can't get out of it. That's right. <laughs> so that brings me to a question I had, you know, you're now the president of Water Environment Federation, what would everyone considers an amazing organization with great reach around the country and the world. So what impact you want to have at VEF 
And what's one thing you're very proud of for the role you've already had? I mean, I got into, I mean, I was a member of WEF, but I, I decided to try to put my hat into the ring around leadership at WEF because if I really wanted to make an impact in this world, there's lots of ways to do that. But one model is to work from within the sector to try to move the sector more broadly. And I think that a lot of the work that I have done is certainly about how WEF works. And there's when you're on the board, there's a lot of nuts and bolts about how the board works that have been important to me, but may not be that visible on the outside. But I'm certainly also very excited for the direction and opportunities that we've had relative to sustainability and resiliency and how to make water more affordable, yet serving people in a better way. And there's lots more work to do on that. And I'm still excited about what's on the horizon. If I were to think back, though, about something that I'm most proud of in the the years that I've been on so far, I think that one thing that I, I might highlight is WEF's journey on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I have played a small part in that, and many people have played much bigger parts. But I think my role, in addition to practicing what we are trying to preach uh, with my appointments and, and those sorts of things, but back in 2018, we had made the decision to refresh our strategic plan, not totally overhaul it, but refresh it. And I led that effort. And one of the things that we did was to incorporate diversity and inclusion goals into the WEF goals back in 2018. And I think that that has really helped create a framework and an opportunity and an expectation for the work that we have done since then. And I'm so, so proud to be part of the work that WEF is doing. I think it's really deep and honest work and will have ramifications not just for the water sector, but for people more broadly as we move forward. Right. You said you did this three, four, five years ago, right? Yeah. And this topic is hot and important now. Yes. Even more. Yes. So you had the vision to be part of that process, put something as a framework, and uh, you get to see the fruits of it as a president of WEF now. That's kind of an interesting story. Absolutely. I, I want to be clear that I've played my small, but we each play our critical parts. We each have our role in the in the machine and in the effort. And I'm glad I was able to be there at the critical time. Of course, everything is a team effort. Yeah. Except actors and singers <laughs> who can do it alone. But we all work in team, you know, yeah. sports teams and corporations and individual, obviously high performance teams. So I want to ask you, since you're deep into the water, you're swimming you know, it can't get out of it. <laughs> how would you characterize the water challenges in the U.S.? And how would you go about addressing them? Certainly one thing that has gotten better in recent years is that people are more aware of water and they're more aware of water infrastructure. I and mean, when we see that in President Biden's infrastructure plan and in the bills that are being put forward by the Senate and Congress, we hear it in everyday parlance now that water is part of that infrastructure so that's good. People know about it. I think that one of the things I might characterize about our challenges ahead are that we need to not just build our infrastructure and fix it and grow it and that sort of thing. We need to build it differently. The infrastructure we have now is largely designed around challenges that we had in the 70s, 60s, 70s, around pollution prevention and reduction. And that's really important. And we don't want to get away from that. But now we have added challenges of climate change, 
changes in precipitation and water availability. So again, using less water and being able to deal with storm water, uh, being resilient and all that while using less energy and making sure that that energy is renewable because climate change is important to the world as a whole, but it's really important to the water sector because climate change is felt through water. And we, we bear the brunt more than any other sector, I would say, uh, from climate change. So we need to be at the forefront of addressing it and also adapting to it. So I would say that's kind of our biggest challenge. And then a corollary to that is that we're a very fragmented sector and that makes it a little bit more challenging sometimes to address big problems when you're as fragmented as we are. Right. No, I mean, I, first of all, you know, the theme that you talked about that we have to evolve our infrastructure to accommodate for emerging themes like climate change, environment, et cetera. Absolutely a terrific point. And I think it is something that has to be not only highlighted, but practiced on how we can evolve that infrastructure. And the other point you talked about fragmentation, and I've discussed many times this topic of the structure of the utility yes. in this country. Do you have a point of view? Do you have a combination of solutions that can address the disadvantage that comes with fragmentation, but still we can make it an advantageous process? Do you have a point of view on this? Well, I think it's a really interesting kind of mixture of social governance, finance, and technical pieces that come together here. And there's lots of different ways to get you know, what some might call economies of scale. I know this is something you've given a lot of thought to. So often when we talk about utility consolidation, what it really plays out to be is a smaller community kind of handing their services over to a larger community and, and losing control. They may get better quality service, but they also lose control. And not every community is willing to do that. And there may be, especially depending on what the socioeconomic and racial dynamics may be between those two communities, there may be tensions that make that a little uncomfortable. In general, human beings don't like to give up control. Right. We have some really interesting opportunities and, and models out there for how communities can collaborate, may not merge, may, or may, may merge their governance, but not their physical structures. And we have great examples, and you've written about some of them, and they're different. It's not one size fits all. I think that with today's smart technology and our ability to monitor things from a distance, we have some really interesting opportunities that were only conceptual opportunities decades ago, and now they're real opportunities. So you can even get merging or cooperation even among communities that don't live near each other. So I think there's some especially interesting opportunities for multiple smallish communities to be able to join forces where they don't have to lose their character. They don't have to feel like they're the David to the Goliath that's taking on their services, yet they can get those economies of scale. Also, that expert support that sometimes is really hard when you're little because you just can't afford that kind of expertise. And it's a brand new world out there. And I think we're just beginning to see, uh, we're early in that Right. Adoption curve, if you will. I didn't expect you were going to bring this example up because um, it's a world unrelated to 21st century. It's a world I live in where a technology was shared by 90 communities. Mm. 
and is offered okay, to those 90 communities by a very large regional utility. And I've seen it. I've seen it actually work. So in many respects, what you're talking, if I take uh, an example, another example, whether it's a perfect or not, but look at Uber. You still have your driver, which is a local community, still owns the car, right? Yeah. But they're able to offer it to their residents, or in this case, anybody who wants to drive a car, uh, who wants to take a ride. And then you have Uber still connecting all the networks, right? Yeah. So you're talking about synergies, but still taking advantage of individual assets. And then there's different business models there. You know, it could be a private company, you know, Uber in this case is a private company. Right. So it could also be a nonprofit organization. It could be a government entity. You know, the place I think of with a government entity is in um, Hampton Road Sanitation District in the Tidewater area of Virginia. Been around for a long time. And it was created to bring together multiple communities and get efficiencies of scale to clean up the Chesapeake Bay back during the buildup to World War II. And now they've been able to continue to bring in smaller communities under their their wing, letting the smaller communities still maintain their character, but get the benefit. And I actually, Uber example, even though it's private, I really meant the public entities. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Louisville Metropolitan Sewerage Districts is doing the same thing. It's getting local utilities. Well, I mean, this is a topic we can talk forever. So I want to switch the question a little bit. Post-COVID-19, this huge water infrastructure opportunity, where do you think most of these investments are going or will be going? Yeah, I think certainly a lot of them are going to go in sort of the same places that we've been seeing them, rehabilitating, leaking pipes, upgrading pumps, you know, all the kind of standard stuff to be able to bring us cleaner water more efficiently. And certainly some of that might be a little invisible to most users, but upgrading pumps and things like that really are important. And they're important even to climate change because they use less energy as we upgrade. But some of the new arenas that I think we're going to see a lot of investment is certainly around energy efficiency and energy recovery from the wastewater sector. In Denmark, the sector is largely, the wastewater sector anyway, is largely energy neutral or even generating energy, more energy than they need. We have an opportunity to bring the U.S. I mean, we're certainly doing, there, there are exemplary utilities in the U.S., but we've got still got a long ways to go overall. We're going to see a lot more concern around climate resilience. We'll see, I think, a lot more. We've already touched on the business of smart technologies to help us, not just with remote communities, communities that aren't connected to each other, but also by using these smart technologies, we can manage our assets more efficiently. And it's been shown that in many cases, actually, expenses, so we don't need as many assets. When you're managing better, you might find that, well, I don't need as big a pipe there, or I don't need as big a holding pond or or whatever. So we can save money that way. We're starting to see a lot more attention to this concept of scalable sewer. It's not all one big centralized treatment plant. It's not all one size fits all, but trying to downscale some of the technologies so that communities can make not exactly just in time decisions, but relative to the 20-year planning horizon that communities often have, one can make these decisions and make these investment decisions as growth happens rather than thinking it might happen and then it never materializes. And that can save a lot of money. And you're also going to see a lot more attention to small communities and disadvantaged communities. That's only what's ahead. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of investment avenues here, looking at the description you just talked about. Yeah. 
And uh, that's kind of an exciting time for the water sector to what I call upgrade the infrastructure for the 21st century. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you talked a lot of operational stuff, pumps and plants and et cetera, but you come from a policy and strategy point of view, right? But the organization that you're leading is very knee deep in running utilities, exactly the language you've been mentioning. Tell me how you're able to bridge that gap to drive the change, because one is strategy and policy, but the organization is very operational, on the ground, boots type. How are you bridging that gap? That's certainly the way people probably most often experience the Water Environment Federation. But there's also a lot of policy and strategy sort of stuff that goes on for the sector as a whole, as well as at any individual utility, whether it's around policies that support preparing for climate change, being part of the solutions to climate change through energy recovery, that sort of thing, whether it's how to modify the clean water. Remember, we wouldn't have much of any of this infrastructure if it weren't for the Clean Water Act driving these changes. So we have a very active government affairs committee. We have a very active constituency throughout the WEF membership. And in fact, next week from when we're recording is our annual water week this year, Mm -hmm. virtual, but where we're getting hundreds, thousands of people to call and communicate with their elected officials around policy, budgets, uh, regulation, the kinds of things that create the framework that everything else fits into. And I think we're more and more thinking about how to look at that through an equity lens to make sure that everyone's got an equal piece of the pie and an equitable access to that pie. But I don't think you can separate out the strategy and policy from the operations. From goals and the operations. That's right. No, I mean, just listening to you, you convinced me that not only with the Clean Water Act, which drove the world of wastewater that we know. All of it. Which is even the reason why we are sitting here and talking, because we can think about the next big step, right? That's right. Not thinking about how to clean our rivers. But yeah, just listening to you convinced me how important this is and how ultimately this drives the operation. So I think you very eloquently answered the question, how you do the bridging uh, between the two. So you talked briefly about equity. And I know even us getting on the podcast, you were talking about things you did in terms of equity and inclusion. I want to get your perspective among the three, the rates, the equity, and the resiliency. How do you rate them on relative importance in the next five years? And there's no trick question. There's no right or wrong answer. But I want to get your perspective on it. Well, I'm going to weasel out of it a little bit by saying that the three things are totally tied together. In a very simplistic way, if you think about resiliency, man, if you're not resilient and you get totally wiped out, well, that's pretty expensive and that's going to have an impact on rates and the people that can least afford that rate change. That's where the equity piece comes in. So I think resilience is part and parcel of those two things. But the way I like to think about rates and rate structures and equitable rate structures is for the last five years or so, whatever the time period has been, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about how to structure the rates so that people can afford their services, no matter what their income level is, you know, there's a base level that where people are protected so that they can get the water that they need to flush their toilets and have basic dignity and health. 
And then maybe an inclining block restructure or something like that that still allows us to pay for the services and infrastructure yet is equitable and you know, provides incentive for people to not use too much, but is equitable. What we haven't yet paid attention to, and I think we're going to see an increasing focus as we go forward, is in what we build. So when we're paying for something, it's partly about the structure of those rates and is the federal government giving us any support for it, all that kind of stuff. But then there's the also, what are we paying for? How do we make sure that what we're building is the most efficient and we don't overbuild? We're building what we need. We're not overbuilding that it's going to be flexible enough to meet tomorrow's needs and the next decade's needs and the next decade's. And this is where we start to get to some of these, the smart infrastructure that can allow us to maybe downscale or right scale some of what we're building. We get to concepts around distributed and scalable infrastructure again, so that we build what we need and not more than we need. And and that's what I mean by making sure that we're building an affordable infrastructure. So it's not just about rates. It's also about what. So to me, those things all tie together. They're not separate three items that I've asked you to rate. Uh, I think you put them together saying they're all important, which I get it. It actually is all important. They are like the Rubik's Cube. You have to solve for them all at the same time. Yeah. You can't parse them out. And that is exciting part, isn't it? I mean, to have complex problems that are interlinked, right? And to be able to do it in a way that all three win, from a management point of view, that is an exciting challenge to have. Yeah. I adore those kind of challenges. But listen, I want to move on. Obviously, no water discussion can happen without technology, right? So tell me a little bit, what are the future water technologies, whether it's treatment, digital, or other things? What are you most excited about in general? Well, you know, I get really excited about technologies that will help us reduce our carbon footprint and help us recover energy. And sometimes you think, okay, if we do that, what are we sacrificing somewhere else? There are technologies that we can do both. And I'm also really excited about some of the technologies out there. And there are multiple ones that allow us to recover phosphorus. Well, we're, I'm all about what we can recover from what is typically called a waste stream. I, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, which we can't see in the podcast, but you know, we have what comes into the Again, I'm using this term wastewater treatment plant, but nothing's wasted. We're recovering clean water from that. That either gets reused directly or goes into the surface water or groundwater, but somehow it comes back as water. Hopefully, we're recovering energy. We should be recovering energy. Uh, Studies have shown that there is as much as five times the amount of energy needed to treat the wastewater embedded in the wastewater. So in other words, in theory, you should be able to not only get all the energy you need to treat it, but even more. So we're recovering energy, we're recovering nutrients. So sometimes it's done, sometimes those nutrients are all embedded in what we call biosolids, you know, the carbon-based, what some people might think of like kind of equivalent of compost. It's not exactly the same, but sort of like that, uh, that can go back onto farm fields and back to regenerate our soils. And sometimes the nutrients can be pulled off as independent, you know, pure forms, especially around phosphorus. We see a lot of work around phosphorus. And that's an essential nutrient for farms, you know, everywhere and and other processes as well. So I get really excited about being able to create a circular economy with all those different pieces. 
You know, it is uh, fascinating. I had Pam Alardo on the podcast mm. in one of the previous episodes. You know, it was one of the missions for her is to have circular economy in, in New York City. Mm. And, you know, you're no more CEO of a wastewater agency. You're actually a resource recovery CEO. That's right. In many respects, uh, you know, generating gas, generating class A, class B, fertilizers, generating pure water that can put it back in the ground or getting retreated. And then you may be even generating as precious as phosphorus. So you are now recovering resources and putting that to good use in your city. And I, I believe that science is just fascinating. Yeah. And kudos to New York City. I, I heard that podcast. And of course, I'm familiar with a lot of the work that they're doing. And they are definitely among the leaders in this. It's exciting to see. Right. So I want to switch a little bit because so far we've been talking in your role at VEF, but you're also the president of Broadview Collaborative. Tell us more about it. At Broadview, I do a lot of the same things that we've been talking about. I have the opportunity to work for my clients, which are mostly NGOs, nonprofit organizations or philanthropic entities, foundations or family offices, that sort of thing around what are the opportunities out there? A lot of times they don't have the technical knowledge to know what some of these coming technologies are, what how the future can be different. They know they want changes, but they don't know exactly what the opportunities are. So I get to be kind of the translator between the WEF world, if you will, the wastewater technology and utility world, and other sectors who care deeply about water and are trying to bridge that gap, maybe trying to make change through their communities, which means through their utilities. And so I like thinking about that kind of big picture strategy with them and helping them figure out what their role is and their opportunities are for advancing sustainable practices. Of course, equity goes right there with that. Well, the name makes sense now. Broad, it's view and collaborative between the NGO and the folks on the ground. That's exactly right. Well, it took me this question to figure it out. Mm. So, <laughs> and, <laughs> and listen in on, on your view of what it does. So I actually wanted to go one level deeper because uh, when I was preparing for this podcast, I ran into a paper that you wrote on distributed infrastructure. Mm. Tell me more about it and what are the opportunity challenges that come with it? Well, this is something I have been interested in for a long time. In a simple sense, Distributed infrastructure is important to me because it allows you, for those who are interested in the circular economy, although we didn't use that term 30 years ago, the smaller the scale is, as you downsize the scale of the infrastructure, it's easier to close the loop on those circles. So for instance, if instead of sending all the wastewater to a big central facility, and then the water goes out to the ocean or the river or whatever, bypassing recharge to the groundwater, well, then you have big impacts on the groundwater. The groundwater table starts dropping. Whereas if you have distributed technologies that allow you to put that water back into the stream or back into the ground closer to where it was removed, you're closing the loop on that hydrological cycle. Oftentimes, you're also saving energy because you're not pumping the water nearly as far. Hmm. A big chunk of the energy that's embedded in our water infrastructure is for pumping. But it also can allow, in a context like, we were talking about New York City earlier, context like a large city that has been growing and growing and has kind of hit the capacity on its collection system. 
one of the things about distributed infrastructure, which means treating the wastewater on site, generally like in the basement of a building or near the building, rather than sending it all the way to the centralized treatment facility, it allows you to do some or all the treatment right there on site. So you can still build new buildings, but not put new pressure on the collection system. Because if you had to enlarge the collection system, meaning you have to dig up streets and put bigger pipes on them, it is massively expensive and disruptive. So in the context of a growing urban center, distributed water infrastructure allows you to grow without having to rebuild your whole infrastructure system. In a smaller community, it might make sense because it might allow them to bring people who are on septic, which sometimes it might fail. It's a lot of times people don't maintain their septic system or their soils aren't right for it. It can allow them to get some consolidation of treatment without having to tie into a, another city. So it allows them to avoid that distribution energy cost and that having to build those pipes and, and those sorts of things. I see it as a really important part of our resilience, of our addressing climate change, of our keeping water where it came from and where it belongs rather than shipping it off to distant places. And also part of the affordability question, because it's just a much more flexible infrastructure. It's not a one-size-fits-all, but it's an important tool that we need to have in our toolbox. Yeah, it's very interesting you brought up, because I remember two years ago visiting one of the large buildings, and they had inbuilt wastewater treatment plant Yes, right, that would recycle all the gray water and leave some of the stuff back into the sewer systems, at least the solids portion of it. And that way, you're hydrologically closing the loop. That's right. I think there is a, absolutely a space for a concept like that in the overall puzzle of the water and wastewater system in the country. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you seen a good example of that? Yeah, there's all kinds. Uh, one that gets me kind of excited right now is... And I haven't had a chance to go personally visit it, but I've seen so many pictures and talked to so many people who are involved in it. It's an eco-district in Portland, Oregon called Hasselo on 8th. Uh, it was, a, as I understand it, sort of an industrial site, and they wanted to redevelop it. But in Portland, which is one of these cities that has had very successful growth, and now their collection system is kind of taxed. So in order to be able to build more infill infrastructure, you're either going to have to dig up that collection system and replace it, massively expensive and disruptive, or find a different way to treat the wastewater. So at Hassel on 8th, they've got a cluster of three buildings sort of mixed use, you know, residential and, and commercial. And they have a little mini treatment plant. It's outdoors, but it's part of the kind of area between the buildings. But it's attractive because you wouldn't know that these little kind of artistic vessels are where the initial part of the wastewater treatment is happening. But then it goes through vegetative wetlands to do the rest of the treatment. And then the water is either reused in their building or discharged into the groundwater, you know, to recharge the groundwater table. And in their case, the solids, the remaining solids aren't put into the collection system. They're actually physically trucked to the centralized treatment plant. So it was a win-win situation. Right. You know, I feel having a number of guests on the podcast and aura around water and the importance of water, I feel much more secured 
that there are a lot of people thinking about water. Oh, yes. We're going to be fine in this space in the next five, 10 years. Well, you know, this is where I have to put in a plug for The Brave Blue World, which was a film produced out of Blue Tech Research, but WEF was the first partner with that. We're very proud to co-produce that. It's on Netflix. I highly recommend it to anybody, especially if you're at all feeling down about the future. You see what's going on, both at the kind of like super high tech, you know, kind of space age kind of stuff, as well as at the real kind of just individual level, not fancy. Innovation happens at all different levels and it's all part of our solution. So all your listeners, I hope they'll go see Brave Blue World on Netflix. There you go. Certainly we have a lot more time because we're not driving. And so we're all working out of homes in this COVID world. So I think definitely they should watch it. That's right. That's right. I want to wrap this thing up because it's a fascinating discussion can go forever. You know, you live this world in terms of dealing with those who don't know much about water and you're operating in the world in which you know a lot about water or working with team members. What do you say to non-water professionals who perhaps have out of sight because the infrastructure is not in our sight, it's underneath, under the ground, an out of mind approach? What is one thing you would say to them? Well, I guess I would say you have to be really careful with your water and think about your water. I remember years ago, long before I worked in water, back when I was in grad school, I turned off the faucet while we were washing dishes or something. And my friend who was hosting me said, what does that really matter? Because it all kind of is going to cycle back through, you know, because it will get treated and comes back. And I said, but no, it just seems so obvious to me that there's energy embedded in that. Every drop of water matters. And so turn it off. That's my, my one piece of advice. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating, though, because when you live that world, how you change your behavior. You know, five years ago, I started this company. And one of the solution is energy management. And we find so much, you know, different opportunities here. But since that time, since our first project on groundwater pumping stations, I have every time when I brush my teeth, I turn off the faucet. Oh, that is great. Prior to that, the faucet was running wild while you're brushing for three minutes, and it had no use for treating that. So it's a behavior. Yes. But that's because it was in my sight. It was not out of sight. Yeah. Yeah. I was living that world and I was seeing how much energy was costing, you know. And so then you, know, you translate that, take that to your dishwashing, your car washing, your clothes washing, your showering, everything. And it starts to add up. Right. And people are doing it. We know that water use is going down. People are being more careful. That's right. Well, and it's also because of the uh, great equipment they're making. Absolutely. They're making faucets and toilets and everything that a lot more energy efficient, so to speak. Yeah. As you said, innovation is happening at all levels. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you this last question. Obviously, it's a fascinating discussion. There's a lot you've achieved, a lot you want to achieve. What is it in the next five years um, that you want to get to that says, wow, even if I retire, I'm happy that I got this done? Well, you know, I'm already pretty happy about a lot of the changes that I see coming. But I think the one thing I still would like to see, and this is not something we've really touched on too much, but I would like to see right now we have in the, the world of wastewater, we have kind of the way we treat things in cities. And then we have the way we treat things in rural areas, which is kind of more septic systems. And they're financed differently. They're regulated differently. The professional circles are different circles. 
And it makes no sense to me, especially as these new scalable technologies come on board, the distinction between the technologies that we'll have available for an individual home will not be all that different than the technologies that we use in a big city. I would like to see there to be, just like we kind of want one water, I would like there to be one sanitation, one wastewater, and to bring all those together, at least in the U.S., that they're very bifurcated right now. And I would love to see all that come together because we're all doing the same thing. It's just, I don't know why we have this duplication of effort. So No, absolutely. I mean, the fragmentation really plays a big role in that. Yeah. Yeah, Lynn, just looking back at this conversation for someone that has literally drowned in the water, right, and um, has a policy background, driving operations, has uh, been really involved in equity and resiliency plays, thinking about distributed infrastructure, resource recovery as one of your exciting technologies that you want to drive. And then literally, you want to address the issue of fragmentation in the next five years, at least be part of the process. It just sounds so many things that you have been. It's just fascinating conversation. And I really want to thank you for being part of this learning process here. Well, it's been fun for me. And I appreciate being invited to join you here. It's been a great opportunity. I look forward to hearing your future podcasts as well. That's Lynn Brodus. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Mahesh. Join host and Aquasite founder and CEO Mahesh Lunani again next month for another episode of 21st Century Water. Subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.